Well, good morning. Welcome to fall, finally. Um, I'm Andrew Sharp. It says it right there in the bulletin. Um, and we are continuing our series, Open to the Middle, which, uh, in which we review the Psalms because they are in the middle of the Bible. And today, we are looking at Psalm 15. Now, I don't know about you, but when, when I read through a passage of Scripture that I haven't come across previously, I have a tendency to read it rather narrowly. I, I kind of think about it very literally. I'll, I'll think, oh, they're talking about such and such, and I may just sort of read on without really engaging the passage. And the problem with that is that I don't, I, I may miss how the, the passage of Scripture may apply to me or what it may teach me about God's character. And Psalm 15 has the potential, I think, to be like that. It's a short psalm. It starts by referring to the Lord's sacred tent on a holy mountain. And in some translations, the tent is called the tabernacle. And worshiping God in a tent pitched on a mountain, just, it sounds primitive to me. Um, and I sort of think, well, that's not something I can relate to. And were I to think that, I think I'd be missing out on a pretty powerful message in the psalm which asks a question that's really only answered by Jesus' incarnation. This is a psalm of David, and I will read it. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. Now the tent, or tabernacle, was a sacred place where man, man would meet God through the administration of priests and the giving of various offerings to, to God. Psalm 15, from everything I could glean, is not clearly associated with any historical occasion, although I think scholars would tend to agree that the mountain referred to is almost certainly Mount Zion, where the Ark of the Lord was brought during David's time. So in asking, who may dwell in your sacred tent, David is asking a pretty profound and universal question. I, I don't think he's necessarily asking for a name or for volunteers. I read it as largely a rhetorical question. Who is blameless enough to stand in the presence of God? 
what sort of person would that be? How would they act? David gives us six attributes that are cast in the positive, those who do X, and five in the negative, those who do Y. And can we list those on the screen? Hopefully, no, we can't. They are in the bulletin though, so you can follow along there. All right, we start with the one whose walk is blameless. Fine, I'm out already. Um, and we all are, if we're being honest. I mean, how can we say we lead blameless lives? I've been blamed for plenty of things. Um, how can we say we do right in every situation? Quickly, 0 for 2. But that's just me. Anybody 2 for 2 at this point? I thought not. Do I speak the truth from my heart? Now, maybe some of you are kind of laughing inside if you know that I'm a lawyer. <laughs> and truth is kind of an elusive subject, especially in litigation. But let me ask you, have you ever massaged the facts of a story to make yourself appear more noble or sympathetic to your listener? Do you make yourself the hero of every story you tell? Do you spin the facts to make a story funnier? I would never do that. In this church, we stress the importance, the imperative of showing love to our neighbor, and hopefully every Christian church stresses that also. So when we read that to qualify under David's list, you have to do no wrong to a neighbor, how do we feel about that? I mean, Jesus, in his parable of the Good Samaritan, defined neighbor as broadly as possible. I mean, there are no boundaries to who your neighbor might be. It pretty much includes anybody that you might come in contact with. Can any of us comfortably say that we have never done wrong to that huge class of people? I mean, and doing wrong is not just doing an affirmative act, but an act of omission, maybe, something we don't do. Have we, can we say we've never cast a slur on another? That's, have we ever spoken about anybody harshly or dismissively? It's a tough list. It is a very tough list. What about on, not honoring a vile person? Well, do we ever defend someone who has questionable character for no other reason than we share the same interests or like the same team or the same ideology? Do we ever give honor to those who abuse power and influence because we think there's something we might gain from them? I know we would never do that. 
but probably many people do. What about honoring those who fear the Lord? Do we invest our time in people who are humble before God and man? In a sermon um, earlier this year, I, I talked about meekness and how it's not timidness, but it's power under control. Do we celebrate those people without regard for what we might get out of it? I find in my sermons I ask a lot of rhetorical questions. So I appreciate your tolerance because there are a lot of them, especially in this sermon. What about oaths? Anybody here ever broken a promise? What about changing your mind? That's on there. I mean, everyone changes their mind. We're supposed to be open-minded, but I don't think that's what David's talking about. I think he's talking about integrity, sticking to one's beliefs when maybe it's not that easy to do that. I mean, if we truly believe in Christian virtues, like charity, fidelity, honesty, neighbor love, those should never give way to social expediency or sensual expediency or political expediency. Are we prone to rationalize away things that it might be inconsistent with Christ's command to love one another? I don't know about you, but I'm getting very uncomfortable moving through this list, and we're not, not through it. Lending to the poor without interest. I think I'm kind of okay with this, but maybe that's only because I haven't done it that often. It doesn't seem to come up. Predatory lending was a big deal in David's time. So it's not surprising that it made his list. The, but when we lend, do we sometimes expect something from it? Are there, do we really lend things, or money especially, with no strings attached? Even if the thing that we want back is, is gratitude? Mary and I saw a movie recently about J. Paul Getty, who was the richest man in the world in his time. And some of you re may remember that his grandson, Paul, was kidnapped and was held for ransom. And J. Paul Getty originally refused to give his son the money to pay the ransom. And he only agreed after Paul's severed ear arrived in the mail. But even then, he only contributed the maximum amount that he could contribute and have it still be tax deductible. And the rest he loaned to his son at 4% interest. That's an extreme example. What about bribes? 
I wrote in my sermon draft, no bribes, I have definitely taken no bribes. Haven't been offered any. <laughs> so we don't really know for sure if I'm unbribable, but I'm confident I would say no. And I kind of thought that I had that going for me at least, but I don't know, how many times do we exchange things in a quid pro quo kind of way? Sometimes that can get very close to something approaching a bribe, or not. It's a gray area though. So who truly qualifies to enter the sacred tent of the Lord? You know, as, as I ponder that, I hear Jesus saying in John's gospel, he who is out without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. And of course, no one casts any stone. Just as no man could fulfill the law of Moses, no man could truly fulfill David's list of qualifications to stand blameless before God. I mean, I, I look at the list and I, I cringe at how far short I fall. And, and don't take offense, but you fall short too. And that would make for a pretty demoralizing psalm and a very depressing sermon. But we have Jesus. Jesus is our high priest. It's through him, despite our sin, that we're able to stand before God blameless. That is the great good news of our faith. That Jesus led the life that we could not. And he didn't do it to show that he, it could be done. He didn't do it so that he could then turn back to us and say, see, now you do that. That would be crushing. No, he lived and died to reconcile us to a God that longed for us to abide with him. And I have to tell you, it is easier for me to conceptualize standing before God than it is to think that I can do so blamelessly. I, I can't help but think about how, like Paul, the Apostle Paul, I fail to do all the things I ought to do, but instead do things I shouldn't. In a billion small ways and many larger ways, I, I believe I have failed God and I expect God's judgment. I expect God's judgment on everything I've done. And the idea that my lifetime of failing to love God and neighbor as I should, that that could be swept away 
through Jesus, it's mind-boggling. It, it seems too good, too good to be true, and I have to remind myself that it is true, that God not only isn't angry or disappointed in me, as I just expect that he should be, but that he delights in me and in you. God would love me if, even if I didn't put my faith in Jesus, but I couldn't stand blameless before him. That, that God offers this sounds so good we think there's a catch to it. That there must be kind of that quid pro quo that we're used to exchanging in, in this world. But there's no catch. When Christians talk about the joy they experience in Jesus, this is what they're talking about. So I hope that's an encouragement to you if you're a follower of Jesus. I, I know that we fight the tendency to think we still have to make up for our sin in some way to please God. And, and we certainly do have to confess it. But rest in the knowledge that you don't need to do anything. Jesus did it. He said it's accomplished. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're wrestling with the really, really challenging idea that God became flesh, lived with, among us without sin, and died so that we could abide with a purely holy God, know this. Faith is really challenging. Some people come to faith in a sudden epiphany kind of experience. Faith arrives like a bolt from the blue, and those blessed people can pinpoint the time and date and place where they accepted Jesus and came to faith. That's not my story. I needed to engage the gospel on an intellectual level. I, I, I needed to know that Jesus was a person who existed in history, not merely according to scripture, but according to other historians. I needed to consider the evidence of his resurrection through the testimony of witnesses and the actions of the early church. And I needed to come to grips with my fallen humanity because we all want to describe ourselves, ourselves as good. But Jesus said only God is good. We're not God. I needed to realize that I needed reconciliation with a holy God who couldn't be in my presence without the intervention of Jesus. One of my favorite Bible verses comes from Matthew's Gospel, where a man tells Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. I relate to that duality, that apparent contradiction. I don't know if you do, but 
that's one of the most comforting passages in Scripture for me. Because they can coexist, belief and unbelief. And they change. They struggle with each other. I mean, belief can be challenged by or strengthened by all sorts of life's events. So if you are considering the gospel and wondering why you're not feeling all this Jesus talk, if you're wondering why you're not having an experience of faith, that you haven't gotten that lightning bolt from the blue, don't worry. Be patient. Take your time to work through all the questions. God will meet you on the journey. And it will be worth it. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we know that the gospel is good news. But we struggle sometimes to really know how good it is that your love comes with no strings attached. And that to be in your presence, to abide with you forever, requires only that we seek and obtain reconciliation through your Son. That we have a God who loves us so much that he would do that, would sacrifice so much for us. It's hard to wrap our minds around it. Help us glimpse that, Lord. Help us to rest in that joy. In Jesus' name, amen.